drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. Come in, sit down. I'm Rick. This is Paul. Welcome to Drive-By Cinema, Season 4. I'll start the bidding, Paul, for the episode number. What do you want to bid me? I'm guessing episode 38. I don't know if I'm right or wrong about that. Woo, man, you've added 10. Crazy. Oh, it's 28. straight into the 30s. It's oh, 28. Fuck. Okay, 28. My consideration is if you don't want to be here, but are against, here against your will. Paul, do we have any corrections to deal with? Well, apart from, you know, my, my, apart from podcast number gate, no, I think we're settled. It is 28. Uh, and it will be 28, and therefore next week will be 29. We're counting with our fingers now. Yeah, I mean, I still have two episode 25s in my episode list in my podcast downloader. I guess you don't have a podcast app, do you, Paul? I do, yeah. I have the original one, whichever we first uploaded to. Podbean. Oh, you downloaded Podbean the app. Wow. Yeah. No, I just use my generic podcast app for all what my What do you podcasts. mean your generic podcast app? You want an Apple phone or something? No, 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 Paul. I mean, part of the Leninist conspiracy that is Apple. It's true that iPhone and iTunes, I think, kind of invented the podcast in a way, didn't they? Because in the iPod days, when it was invented, yeah. it's not on online, it's not an internet device. You plugged it into a computer to get your, your music, yes. and you could tell iTunes to go away and get these newfangled podcast things and put the latest one you on could. your... On your Although device. I never did it. I was consumed with sending ringtones to friends for £1.99 a time. I don't know why it cost £1.99 to send ringtones by Bluetooth, but it did. I don't know how that happened. Ringtones? Oh, yeah, fine. you could change your ringtone for your phone, and there were little music files that you could send to your friend to change their <laughs> ringtone. I mean, that is true. People don't do that anymore, don't I mean, there used to be a huge craze in changing your ringtone. It used to be a huge business. Enormous business. It's a massive business. It's just strange to think of why people would pay two pounds for for an imitation of or a poor a poor a lo-fi kind of copy of Justin Timberland singing something, Crimea River or something. I mean, I mean, I just took a song from my MP3 archive, as it were, took a snippet out of it, and made it my ringtone. You see, the sage he has passed his he has passed the locks that that the uh, that the society put put on ringtones. They're all wonderful, Richard. No, but it's a bad idea, because oh. what I realised doing that is you don't ever want to put a song you like as the ringtone of your phone. Yeah, I can concur with I, that, yeah. I, mean. I don't know about you, but my phone never rings for anything good. It no. only ever rings. It's the same for alarms, alarm. isn't it? You come to hate the sound of your alarm, you know. Absolutely. It's, it's yeah. like it's Pavlovian to an extent, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yes, yeah. So I think I used a Moby track. As my ringtone for a long time, and now, <laughs> now you can't stop Moby. Yeah. <laughs> Moby can be quite depressing stuff, anyway, can't it? It's very moody kind of dance music, isn't it? It's very wall of emotion kind of stuff. Yes, you're right. You need to be careful about setting up Pavlovian responses to your own to your own stupid phone. Let's just say, you know, working in a factory. I don't know if you've ever done that. I don't think Richard has, have you? Have you ever worked? You must have worked in a factory at some point. No, you haven't. I've done work experience oh, in okay. a tailor's. Is that like a factory? No. I had to make the the weird bits of weird material you get on the unseen parts of a suit jacket. Wow, 3D topology, incredible. You know the bits like underneath the collar that have got like a felt kind of material? I do know what you mean, yeah. I had to cut those out. So anybody sending their GCSE maths will know that's a net. You're producing a net that you're going to later fold into a 3D, a 3D shape, aren't you? 
No, I think they're just like iron on, aren't they? Oh. They just give a bit of stiffness to the comment. Sorry, I was picking up your work experience there. <laughs> Trying to give it some academic... It's, it's not origami, but all. Oh, it's not. Tailoring. It's draping, isn't it? It's drapery or whatever you call it. Yeah, if you've ever worked in a factory, you'll know you'll come to hate any of the songs they play on the hour, every hour. Is it pumped in by the Muzak Corporation? Well, no, I mean, like, they just played local radio. They don't. You don't have to pay to play local radio, do you? Because the radio has already paid for the licensing rights, hasn't it? Right. So you learn what's on the local radio station playlist. And inevitably, during my stints in factories, it was always Snow Patrol, Keen, and Coldplay. <laughs> so I think I would have hated them anyway, but I, I, I just have a particular <laughs> loathing for the wiriness of those three bands. Oh, it just, it's like chalk on chalkboard. It's cringe. And what activities were you asked to perform in the factory? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I spoke, spoke to you about this a few months back. You were saying you think there are still kind of easy-to-get temporary factory jobs in the UK. I don't think there are, Richard. I think they've pretty much disappeared. I don't think that was me. It sounds like oh. you're having a conversation with somebody who knows about like you. industrial economics or something. Or maybe you were just saying there are, there are short-term kind of easy-to-get jobs available. However, having applied for one of those uh, about a year and a half ago, I have to say that the HR process is noticeably more extensive than it was. They gave me the job three and a half months later, by the way, by which time I'd obviously be on something else. But back in the day, mid-2000s, early 2000s, you could You could just walk in off the street, couldn't you? The economy was on a bit of a bounce-up, wasn't it? A bit of the Blair sort of after-party glow to it all. Yeah, you could walk into the temper agency and then they'd send you to the factory. You'd do your 30 minutes induction. And you get you get your job that afternoon, kind of thing, and it really was that quick. Get a job in a bowling alley, presumably. Well, I prefer the factory work, to be honest with you. Well, it's a ten pin agency, so presumably it was all bowling. <laughs> Sorry, I did not see that coming. So yeah, I think that's changed, hasn't it? HR processes are somewhat more convoluted these days, let's say. Hey, Paul, should we generate a Pavlovian response in our listeners by playing a bit of music of our own? Yes, let's do that. Or rather, the AI that we forced to create music for us. Yeah, we whipped it into action. It's produced this. Here we go. Here we come. Now, I should say that although for our listeners, at the very earliest, it's probably just past Valentine's Day. Woohoo! For us, it's still in the middle of Chinese New Year. And I'm expecting to be interrupted by fireworks. I don't know whether they'll pick up on the recording. There's nothing I can do about it. Last night was like an enormous firework celebration. But it's fireworks all year round these days, really, isn't it? Maybe it's not the same in Blackpool. You said you had how a firework. D- d- how dare you? We have the International World Firework <laughs> Competition. Yeah. Every year, Richard, we have the heats. We have the quarterfinals, we have the semifinals, and we have the finals. <laughs> oh, you, you're, you're really pulling my leg there, aren't you? Paul, what's this week's film? <laughs> the, this week's film is one of several of the same name, The Invisible Man, but this is from 2020. By director and writer... Now, I thought this was a made-up surname. It's Lee Wannell, or Wannell? I don't know how you say that. Wannell. It's like flannel, but with a whoopee at the front. And have we seen anything by him before? Uh, I don't know, but the producer is surely Jason Bloom, isn't that all right? Well, the answer is yes, we have. Ah. He, of course, was behind, I think, the first Saw movie. No way. But he also did Upgrade, which we saw Oh, we did relatively see Upgrade, recently. yeah. Of course, Jason Bloom probably needs no introduction to our listeners. Get Out, Halloween, both of which I think... Well, the first we definitely reviewed. The second, I'm not quite sure if we have reviewed or not. 
We certainly did get out, yeah, no question. Mm-hmm. This is a ba- box office super smash, maybe seven million well spent dollars, and brought in 145, incredibly. Well, the story I read was that Lee Wanel was called in to the studio after Upgrade. He was expecting them, I think, to talk about Upgrade. Right. And they did say, oh, you know, we like the movie. But then they just started talking about giving him The Invisible Man. And he wondered sure. what he was doing, I think. But he took the job. There are some notable similarities, actually, between the two films. They both involve, like, a shadowy sort of millionaire living in a coastal modernist house. Remind me what happened with Upgrade. Is the AI guy. Well, Ex Machina is the, is the one where he lives in a swanky house in the forest, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but... Upgrade was the one where he goes to the house, which is, there's like a door, on a just a door coming out of the ground on a cliff, and he goes yeah. down the steps. Oh, I quite like that one, I remember. Yeah, I mean, we reviewed it fairly well. I think also both of them were filmed in Australia or New Zealand, or I can't remember Upgrade, but this one I think was filmed in Australia, pretending to be the US. Yeah, pretending to be... In fact, it's pretending to be San Francisco, isn't it? Yeah, obviously the West Coast, I'm not quite sure, were Big Sur or San Francisco or somewhere down there, beautiful drives... Down that down that coastline, Invisible Man itself actually was was it actually a novel or a short story by H. G. Wells? I can't remember. But of course, there've been several movies of the same name, haven't there? Based on his original novel, I think it was a book. A yeah, book. and that was way back, wasn't it? In the end of the early nineteenth century. Oh yeah, beginning 20th, of twentieth, yeah, late nineteenth. Yeah, yeah. And as such, I suppose must count as one of the first sci-fi novels, along with the Time Machine. Yes. Big debate, is Frankenstein a sci-fi novel? Nearly everybody says yes, which will put it way ahead of everything else. Sure. But it's a one-off, isn't it, Frankenstein? Also, I, I think we have to mention, although you probably want to get the film, the almost cult film, Invisible Maniac, which I've mentioned several times on this podcast series. Uh, if it's available to anybody, I do suggest you watch it. It is a cult, riotous classic. It's a scream. Well, you recommend it because of its sensitive portrayal of invisibility. Invisibility, yeah, essentially. <laughs> a cloak, things underneath cloth, basically. It's just, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's intentionally so. It's, it's meant to be a hoot. It's meant to be a riot. Now, The Invisible Man was also a quite an early movie, based on the concept in the book, but it didn't really take the story of the book, I don't think. Made, I think, in the late 30s. And it's obviously kind of a special effects groundbreaker because they had to depict this invisible man. So obviously, I guess it was a big gimmick and a big spectacle at the time. It's quite famous from that, from that regard. I just love that, I love that era of Hollywood and then discovering how to do special effects. It's fabulous, isn't it? What's the, what's the floating uh, ghost image thing that Disney often showcases in their tours of their, of their, of their studios? Well, the Pepper's Ghost illusion. Pepper's Ghost, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's a real, that's a stagecraft kind stagecraft, of illusion, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And then, of course, the famous, uh, the famous paint from the transformation of Jackal and Hyde. That was kind of like a discovery, wasn't it? With black and white film, you can kind of with different lighting, you'll get different absorption, yes, yeah. yeah, different Incredible. color lighting, yeah, brilliant. I mean, really though, the history of cinema film, almost at the beginning, they were experimenting with being able to make special effects yeah. because. They realised you could stop the camera and take someone out and make them disappear or make them reappear, that kind of thing. I think it's been a very a very common thing all the way through cinema, but the story in the movie in the 30s was different because in the original book, as I understand it, I've not read it. I've only um, read, read summaries and stuff. I think in the original book, the scientist Griffin, that's the only name he's given by H.G. Wells, he invents this invisibility thing and he can't reverse the process he uses it 
to nefarious ends. I think he steals or tries to use it to gain power and stuff. But because he can never reverse the process, the whole thing drives him mad. I see. I think it has a tragic end. Whereas in the film, I think he's more of a heroic character. And then there have been many adaptations since. I mean, obviously, it's kind of out of copyright, so you can take the Invisible Man character. But I'm not sure to what extent you can own the idea of someone being invisible, because it's surely older than even H.G. Wells' novel. Yes, yes, yeah. Here we are. Again, this does credit him, doesn't it, as an inspiration. Mm-hmm. And this character in this film is going to be a bit more nefarious, isn't he? Evil. Adrian. Adrian Griffin. We'll get to him in a second, I guess. This is set very much in the present day. And it opens quite engagingly, I felt, with a little scene of a woman trying to escape from her situation, which is that she's... She's trapped in a really, really nice beach pad. <laughs> trapped in a nice beach pad, yeah. It's, no, it's, a it's, modernist, it's very modern. It's, modernist, it's a cliff-top, modernist concrete, house. delightful objects, uh, art objects throughout. Okay, Husband, presumably husband, is sleeping in the bed that she's creeping and crawling out of, yeah? We know it's middle of the night, 3.43 it says on her alarm clock. She's awake in bed and she moves her partner's hand from her flank so she can get out. Mm-hmm. She pulls something from under the mattress, I think it's diazepam. a bottle of diazepam, mm-hmm. and, and, which is Valium, isn't it, by any other name? Yes. We learn from her actions that I think she's drugged her husband with it Correct. to keep him asleep. She goes into the walk-in closet... We've been through this before. Americans have walk-in closets or built-in <laughs> closets. We would have a wardrobe, wouldn't we? But she goes into her walk-in closet. She pulls out a sort of go bag that she's flea bag, but not F L E E A F L E E. Flea bag. <laughs> a flea bag. Yeah. What do you call that? You're ready. You pack bag. You're go ready bag. to go. It's a go bag. Oh, go bag. That's the word for it. Yeah. It's obvious she's being surreptitious, isn't it? She's trying not to oh, wake yeah. him. And she's also turning the security camera around, isn't she, that's in the hallway. As well as that, she's linking that to her phone so she can keep an eye on him and make sure he's still asleep, presumably as she leaves the house. Now, she makes her way through the house, and she winds up in what effectively is like an Iron Man lab. Yeah, I thought it was her garage. I thought <laughs> impressive garage, but it's not. We get to the garage later. It's got all these bits of scientific equipment in it yeah. and, a, and mannequins with these military-looking suits on them. She's in there to unset or deset or reset the surveillance cameras. Is that right? And turn the alarms off. She gets dressed in the kitchen, kicking the, the dog bowl. This whole set, set of scenes was just it was full of tension. I loved it. I thought it was a really great opener. It's so slow. and it, Oh, God, it's like you just want to get a freaking move on. Do you know what I mean? It's really, and- really eked out beautifully. Simultaneously, it tells you a lot about what's going on, but you also want to understand, don't you? You know, you know immediately she must be in some kind of abusive relationship mm. she's trying to escape from, but what's brought this about? And of course, we're also expecting invisibility to come into it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of forgot the title. Like That lab didn't really... It didn't smack of didn't invisibility. didn't smack of, you. okay, there's going to be some invisibility resulting from high technology. No, no. But, I mean, H.G. Wells, Griffin was a scientist. I think he had some kind of chemical, didn't he? Some kind of potion that changed his refractive index, didn't it, or something, probably. It's often how it's de- depicted, isn't it? You take something. So I interrupted you. She kicks a dog ball, doesn't she? But it seems not to wake up her husband, because presumably he's quite heavily drugged. She goes downstairs, and she winds up in the sort of underhouse carport. Mm-hmm. Carport slash garage. At this point, the dog comes out, which is a Doberman Pinscher, isn't it? It's cute, yeah. It's a lovely dog. And it obviously likes her more than it likes him. Well, I was going to say, Paul, we are at the moment in a bit of a hysteria moment about the XL, XL Bully yeah. dogs. 
We've just had another XL bully death, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, they're genuinely going around eating eating people, aren't they? She was hitting its puppies with sticks, though. I, I know it's tragic and it's not a funny situation, but she was hitting its puppies with sticks, so... But it's, there's nothing new, is there? There's always a dangerous dog breed that's in the news. Or, like, every, like, decade has its own breed. Like, at one point it was Rottweilers. Before that, I think it was Doberman Pinches. Yes, now that. I think one of us has to say, it's not the dogs, it's the owners. Guns don't <laughs> kill people, robbers do, etc., etc., etc. Staffordshire Bull Terriers at one yes. point. Alsatians at another point, probably, I don't know. Yeah, the Alsatian in the 70s was seen as a terrifying dog, wasn't it? I, I got sort of mauled by an Alsatian in the early 80s, maybe. I got mauled by a poodle about two years ago. God, we've got to get rid of those poodles, man. <laughs> and, uh, it's on the beach. And I, I was running, yeah, so I was plowing a straight line. And it must have seen me running at speed Prey towards... instincts, Paul. No, it wasn't that. It, it oh. was sitting happily with around a lit barbecue, which shouldn't have been happening. But they had, like, their tent, their windbreaker up, and there were eight or nine of them lounging. Well, windbreaker, that's a very 70s thing to have on the beach. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's that neck of the woods, isn't it? So, and I was running down. Obviously, it kind of looked like I was making a beeline for them. So he came rushing out to defend his family. Okay, so he scratched me several times with his paws and had a quick little bite in my thigh. Yeah, and then kind of laid off. Uh, and that, that wasn't the problem, really, being assaulted by a dog. It was more the owner's response. When I moved back, of course, then it, I think its prey drive kicked in. And you know, they were kind of blaming me for the initial attack rather than the second attack. But, you know, I was saying to him, what do you want me to do? Stamp on its head? Of course I'm going to move back from it. But they offered no compensation, incredibly. I'm missing no fault. Uh, of course, it certainly a- bad owners make for bad dogs. Mm. But it's also true that some dogs are more of a threat than others. Poodles, um, for example. Both of these yeah. things are true, right? That all said, Richard, have you seen these XL bullets? I mean, they are fairly. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it- they're fairly thick set, aren't they? Let's put it that way. How do we get here? Oh, the Rottweiler. Okay. Now, this is one of the, this one of the annoying, oh, annoying Rottweiler. victim things that she does. She takes pity on the dog rather than escaping, yeah? Oh, she removes its shock collar. Yeah, and in doing so, it, it kind of jangles and jiggles against it, and she bumps into the car and sets Into the, the Audi. Yeah. There's like an R8 or something. It is an R8, yeah. Next to the dog, and it sets the alarm off. So she sets off running. She manages to scale the concrete wall that surrounds the property. Just as a bedroom light's coming on, yeah. And she scurries away to the nearest road and flags down a passing car. Well, apparently she's, um, she's rendezvoused oh. her sister Emily to turn up. Is that it's her right? sister, that's right, who's picking her up. So she knows the car. She jumps in the passenger seat. Emily's really annoying. She won't drive <laughs> off. She's like, well, tell me what's happening. And uh, Cecilia, the lady, is saying, just drive. Oh, God, so annoyed. Consequently, because of the hesitation, Paul, what happens? Adrian Griffin... Her husband has presumably recovered from the, the dose of diazepam, has sprinted across the fields and is now breaking the glass at the passenger side and grappling and trying to choke his wife. Yeah. He runs straight at the car, doesn't he, and breaks the window yeah. with his fist in one motion. He's a bit of a nutter, really, isn't he? But they drive away, they get away. Not before she dropped her bottle of diazepam. I guess that tips him off that he had been drugged, right? Yeah. He, he picks it up and looks at it. So two weeks later, we get a caption telling us this. And she's now at a friend's house, it turns out. She's looking nervously yeah. out of the window. Now, I thought it was a safe house, but it's not. It's just a friend's house. And she's paranoid. She feels she's being stalked, and she's sure that Adrian is going to find her. Yeah, she's a fear to go out, isn't she? And she's Yeah, she's got kind of induced agoraphobia, isn't she? She's blacking out the webcam on her computer. So, obviously, this is an indication of he's been very controlling and very stalky previously, She's blacking out her webcam on her computer with Tipex, I think, or Snowpake or something. Wow. That's what it looked like. I mean, she picked it up from 
the Why don't you just cover it with masking table? tape? You've got to sell that get, laptop eventually, well, Who you? uses Tipex anymore anyway? How do you get Tipex? Paul, can you find a bottle of Tipex in your house now? Go. No. No. Nobody has it anymore. You have Tipex paper now, don't you? Tipex that roller that kind of... The way they lay tar on roads, they've got that kind of white little Tipex roller thing, haven't they? It rolls out the correction. Do you know what I mean? I have seen that, yes. That's all the kids use. But do you have any? No. No, no we don't need it. We don't use printed documents anymore, do we? Or do we don't type things. I suppose if you're writing and you're anally kind of tidy, you might want to tipex out your mistake. But who does that? I think a good Surely. straight line and right over the top is much better, to be honest with you. I've never exactly. understood that. Exactly. This house has it anyway. She goes out to the mailbox. Now, bearing in mind this was filmed in Australia, they had to ship that mailbox in, <laughs> put it in the garden so it looked like America. Why, Paul, does America have mailboxes on little sticks? At the end of the garden. Well, previously, so teenagers in hot rods could knock them over with a baseball bat. <laughs> I don't know. I guess because of property rules and the fact that you could shoot the postman legally. <laughs> yeah, that's a very American answer. Yeah, yeah. Come on, my property. There'll be an armed response. Yeah, because I mean, it comes down to versions of events. And if somebody's not allowed to sell a version, then the homeowner's going to win, aren't they? I don't know. Someone dressed in a postal worker's uniform, <laughs> surely. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's some crazy with a there, bag right? of mail, you know. <laughs> Excel boys too, you know. I mean, I'm not sure I want to be a postman ever in any country. No, I terrifying. agree. It's a intimidating job, but yeah, yeah, you may be right because I guess they're federal employees, aren't they, or something? So maybe there are people who don't want the government coming on their land, affecting their citizen sovereignty. Leave the letters in a neutral ground <laughs> on the liminal space between public and private. She's got a message from somebody, is that right? That's right, yeah. Before then, I think, yeah. does her sister turn up at the house and she says, Emily, sister, you're not welcome. He knows where you live. If you come here, he's going to follow you. Does she get a letter or was she just at the mailbox getting she, spooked? She does get drama? a letter calling her to go and see something about Will Probate, isn't that right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, for her husband, yeah. Her sister also, yeah, she tells her that the stalker is dead, that Adrian has died. Yeah, we don't really find out how. Presumably suicide, is that implied or not? No, they see it on the news, don't they? Oh. Or a newspaper or something, that they see suicide, an optics groundbreaker. Oh. So Adrian apparently works in optics. She's also explaining to her sister and her friend here, I think, what this guy was like, what her husband was like. Says he was very controlling and that he was insisting that they had a baby, but she was taking birth control. And she knew that once he actually had the baby, she would never, ever be able to leave him. So that's why she wanted to take the birth control to make sure that never happened. Anyway, he's dead, it seems. Yeah, So, but she's got this letter. Will, they go to San Francisco. We know it's San Francisco, Paul, because you see the Transamerica building and stuff. So we meet, we, we meet Tom, don't we? Who happens to be Adrian's brother. And he's there to represent Tom. Yeah, he's presumably a lawyer, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Or an attorney, as they say, maybe. And he's reading the will. Apparently, Cecilia gets $5 million. Not bad. 100000 per month. Not bad. $5 million. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. But there's a condition on the will, which is that as long as she doesn't commit a crime and get incarcerated. Yes, and is of mentally sound mind as well, I think. Oh, she's not committed, yes, also. Yeah. She's staying with his friend, who's a dad and daughter. She, he's a cop, I think, mm-hmm. and his daughter. Uh, his daughter is sort of college age or coming up to college age. Yes. So now she's got all this money. She's going to give Sydney, yeah, this guy's daughter, she's going to give her a load of money as a college fund, isn't she? 
220,000 over a year, which is enough to go to Parsons, the fashion school that the young girl wants to go to. Oh, how happy. Happy moment. And she delivers that present in a really nice, clever way by hiding at the top of a shelf and pretending to gift Sydney a ladder instead, but the ladder's there just to... No, the ladder was for her dad. Oh, for her dad. Yeah. It's lovely. Well done. So we can see, we're seeing very much that Cecilia's a, a thoughtful and, and kind woman, isn't she? Yeah, but we also, around this time, we start to see an unusual cinematic technique, don't we? A filming kind of policy where the image on screen lingers on an empty frame or it is framed so we see the action only in one part of the screen and there's another blank area of the screen giving us a subliminal almost impression that maybe there is someone in that blank portion of the screen. Mm. Did you notice this? I didn't notice that, no, but well spotted. Ah, there's a moment where... I did generally think that it turns creepy at this point quite quickly, doesn't it? Ah, so maybe you didn't notice consciously, but it had this effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a moment where she's unpacking her clothes that she's been shopping. She gets spooked by something, but she can't see anything. And then there's another moment where she burns the egg and bacon in a pan. Yeah, I was about to say that, yeah. And then at night, middle of the night, she gets woken up. She's spooked again. She leaves her own room, goes to the lounge. We see the front door is opened Mm -hmm. and the little security chain that you put on to see who's there. It's kind of swinging. Oh, so creepy. It builds up quite nicely, this section here. And then she goes out through the open door. And it's quite a chill night. Well done while she's agoraphobic, isn't she? So it's progress at least. It's quite a chill night. And you can see her breath, the mist from her breath mm. coming out. And as she's standing there on the doorstep, you see just by her right ear, another breath appears out of nowhere. Paul is looking like he didn't see that. I missed that clue completely. I'm sorry. It's probably too small to see on a phone screen. That's the I problem. knew this was going to come, <laughs> No, it's quite subtle, though. It's a subtle effect. But I guess I was looking for it. Because he's a clever clerk. Well done. Okay. Right, we'll move swiftly on, Richard, with your bragging. You're expecting the traditional invisible man of fedora just floating <laughs> around, aren't you, or something? <laughs> In that sense, it was quite subtle, yeah. But maybe a bit too subtle, because I didn't see it. <laughs> but you're no, right. Then later, then later she, I think she's staying in Sydney's room, isn't That's she? That's right, yeah. And they're both in bed together, and the cover gets pulled off, both of them. And we see flash photos, or we see flashes in the room. We don't see the photos being taken, but it's maybe indicated that somebody is taking camera shots of her. Well, Cecilia wakes up spooked. Maybe the light did wake up. Obviously, not diazepam for her. She finds that the cover is on the ground at the foot of the bed, so she goes to pick it up. When she tries to pull the sheet back onto the bed, it's caught on something. It just seems to be stuck against the, the ground, against the floor, doesn't it? Yeah. So we get this kind of like, does she dream or hallucinate the flash image of a man at that point? I think she does, doesn't she? Oh, when she woke up, there's a nod to the old Invisible Man movie yes. because there's a hat stand with a with like yes, a hat. Yes, that's on it. right. Sorry. And briefly, the silhouette looks like a person. So we get to monster monster under beds kind of situations where she's rabidly searching for what she thinks is an intruder in the bedroom. She's, she's holding the sheet, yeah. and it's clear that something is trapping it. on yes. the As she's doing that, suddenly, like a footstep appears on the sheet, pressing yeah, it down that. closer I saw that. to her. Yeah, I saw that bit. Like someone is, is walking toward her on the sheet. What can you do except call James, her mate? He's actually a, a detective, isn't he, or something like that? He's a cop, yeah. He's a cop. Yeah. Amusingly, Sydney wakes up and grabs a taser out the drawer. But there's nothing there. They, they can't see anything. So they just assume she's had a nightmare and stuff and go back to bed. 
And next day, she goes for a job interview because Cecilia turns out is an architect. Mm-hmm. So she goes through a job interview with quite a creepy guy, let's be honest. He says something a bit off, doesn't he, when they meet? And she pulls out her, like, folio of her work. When she opens it, all the drawings have gone from, oh from inside it. It's almost like somebody's oh. tampering with her life, invisibly, isn't it? Then she has a bit of a funny turn and passes out, doesn't she? She passes out, she freaks out, and then she passes out. But yeah, so interview didn't go so well. So footprints and sheets, portfolio missing from, from her interview bag. I guess it's time to visit the hospital, isn't it, and get some sort of checkup. Well, if you pass out, Paul, in the middle of the day, you should probably go to hospital, and indeed she does. She does. And yeah. the hospital reveal that she's got diazepam in her system. Oh, yeah. So that's that's, that's incredible news, because, I mean, she's drugged somebody with diazepam, and now... She's got diazepam in her system. There's also some other news, some really important news, but she doesn't listen to the rest of the phone call, does she? I guess that's going to be pivotal later on in the movie. Yeah, I don't think she's told at this point. Maybe I'm wrong. But when she gets back, she finds in the bathroom the original bottle of diazepam that she had. So she knows now, doesn't she? She's certain that either her husband, Adrian, isn't dead, and he's somehow stalking her, or potentially, I don't know if it's played in her mind, somebody else is using the fact that she might not think her husband is dead to haunt her and terrify her with the idea that he's still around haunting him. So she goes back to Adrian's brother, the, the attorney. Confronts him, yeah. She says, I know that Adrian's still alive and he must have figured out a way to be invisible. He was an optics expert. The brother, who I think is called Tom, isn't he? Tom, that's is that right. right? Yeah. He says, look, Adrian has a way of getting into people's heads. He got into mine. He controls people. He's very smart. He's doing this from beyond the grave, as it were. He'd set you up for all of this. Don't let him beat you, even in his death. Don't let him do this, kind of thing. She's screaming, he isn't dead! And he's saying, well, his urn is right there in front of us, so I'm disinclined to believe you. Even if he was dead, this would be weird enough, somebody recreating the situation. But I guess from an outside perspective, it's all in her mind, isn't it? But we kind of know. It doesn't look that way, doesn't it? We see it from her perspective. We know that somebody is messing with her big time. She goes to try and visit her sister, but her sister wants nothing to do with her because apparently Cecilia has sent her a really snotty email. And when she gets back home, she checks her sent items and she sees that she did indeed send a very unpleasant email telling her that she'd ruined her life. Well, Emily says, I don't mind the fact in the email you say you're going to give me none of the money that you've got, but I do mind that you disparagingly commented me and said I had a suffocating character. And obviously, Cecilia didn't send this. She's got it's no a, recollection. It's of a fancy this. email. Or are we supposed to be led down the, tra- the track in this movie where we think she actually is switching between personalities, if you like, and not aware of some of her actions? Never really. And maybe she's been taking these drugs. Maybe she's been taking potentially. Yeah. It's not really she's an high on value. <laughs> we're, we're not really. We're not asked to sit upside down on the swing and, and view the world upside down, are we? At this point, so it's never no. really explored. But it's no. suggested. It's hinted at, isn't it? I think the point of all of this is we're given to understand that that's what everyone else must think. Yes. She must look like a crazy person trying to tell them that her husband's still alive and is invisible. I think, understandably. (laughs) At some point, she's sobbing about this, and Sydney, the daughter of the house, goes to try and comfort Cecilia, just as she tries to speak to her. Well, she's just cake for comfort, doesn't she? Which is also a good idea. Cake really does comfort people. But she gets hit, doesn't she, Sydney, by something we don't see. Mm. Something hits her. And Sydney thinks it was Cecilia. Screams to Dad. Dad comes rushing in, James. And, of course, he says, the only thing I can do is look after my daughter and I want to take her somewhere safe. Cecilia, you need to sort yourself out, kind of thing. Left alone in the house now. Although she's told to get out. 
she now thinks that Invisible Adrian must be here. So she gets a knife and she spreads coffee grounds all over the Coffee grounds. I was wondering what was the crinkle dust, because I think that's a technical term for it. What was the crinkle dust that she spread on the floor? Coffee grounds. Crinkle dust. What is that what you use to find invisible people? Yes, footprints. Crinkle dust. (laughs) Yes, extemporising on that, on that theme, she, she creates her own crinkle dust, which is coffee grinds. Very clever, yeah? And, for good measure, grabs herself a kitchen knife. And she also, then, decides to call her husband's old mobile phone number. Not before she's spoken to Thin Air, which I guess is suggesting that if you were reviewing this dispassionately, you'd think she's gone batshit crazy. She'd gone completely mad. But she calls her husband's old phone number, gets his voicemail, but she hears the phone ringing in the house. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, that's a very thin loft ceiling. I guess it's possible in America. Or that iPhone comes with a built-in vibrator. Now, you called it a loft, Paul. But I think in America they have attics, not lofts. Oh, it seemed like a loft to me. What's the difference between a loft and an attic? An attic is an attic room. A loft is a loft space. It is a loft space, you're right. They're called it's attics just, in America. Yeah. Ah, so you're saying lofts are actually called attics. Wow. Didn't I think so, but, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. Whereas in the UK, an attic is a room, isn't it? It's a livable room, usually. I, I don't know, is it? No. Would you say I'm going up in the attic or I'm going up well, You call the it loft? a loft conversion, not a loft. You call it a loft conversion, not an attic conversion, don't you? Ah, interesting. One for the etymologist to research. <laughs> So what does she do? She goes up in the loft with a new ladder, is that right? Yeah, she goes up, she gets the ladder, inspects the loft. She sees the phone lying there, she finds on it pictures of her lying in bed with Sydney that was taken oh, the, the other night. Oh, crikey. Oh my gosh, that would be a shock for anybody, wouldn't it? She finds a knife in a Ziploc bag, mm. which is strange. And she also finds her architectural portfolio, her drawings lying Whoa. there. As she's doing and looking at all of this, a text pops up on Adrian's old phone saying, Surprise! She panics. She turns around. Here's a noise. She chucks paint down the loft hatch. Clever. It covers a figure in this white paint that was completely invisible a moment ago. The ladder gets knocked over. We now sort of play a game of sighted man's bluff. There we go. So the two tropes of the original movie detected the invisible man, crinkle dust, and now twinkle paint. Okay, so she throws a twinkle paint and it twinkles all over this escaping person or personage. I think she hears the tap running in the kitchen and goes downstairs and finds a load of white paint kind of being washed off into the kitchen sink. At that point, she's grabbed, isn't she? And yeah, we get a bit the classic of a yeah. Invisible Man scene where she's lifted, levitated off the ground by presumably being throttled at the throat. But she has a fight with an invisible assailant, manages to smash a stout plate or two over his head or her head. Who knows? Nice scramble for weapons in the middle of it. She was flung across a table as a bartender would send whiskey down the bar. Some nice shots. <laughs> she manages to make her escape, doesn't she? And she grabs yes. an Uber to pick her up. Well done. I mean, that Uber came quick. It did come quick. It did come quick. But she goes to Adrian's old Plot house. twist. I just assumed he would be on the roof of that Uber, but he wasn't. Or was he? We wouldn't know. He? We don't know. She, drives, she gets the Uber to Adrian's old house out on Stimson Beach, I think she said. Which is brave. Let's face facts. And she lets herself in, telling the Uber to wait for her. She goes to the lab, to the Iron Man lab in the house. Back to the weird contraption she'd spotted on the way out, yeah. And she tries to open this special machine. It, it looks like a person could stand in it, doesn't it, or something? It's sort yeah. of that size. Guesses the key code, because I think it was the year that they, or the date that they met, or something similar. That's more information that I had than 
you were paying more attention than I was, Richard. So Paul, if you don't collect all these key code numbers, how are you ever going to be able to break into one of these places? <laughs> how does she discover that it's an invisibility cloak? By accident or just by breaking into the system? There doesn't appear to be anything in it. It's just like a space about the size of yeah. a person or a mannequin. But there's an iPad next to it. And she taps on the iPad. It switches something off. And suddenly, this suit reveals itself. And it's like a black, all-in-one, one-piece kind of suit. isn't it? With loads of lenses all over it. Oh, it's lenses. I thought it was like haptic feedback, but there we go. Well, presumably the idea is that it's got cameras everywhere and it somehow projects an image of what's behind it through the other side. I mean, this is real technology now. We can essentially invisibilate objects, can't we? This idea was taken forward in Mission Impossible movie, wasn't it, where Tom Cruise sort of creeps down the corridor behind an invisibility screen, doesn't he? (laughs) Really rather well done. Well, I think that's done with infrared, isn't it? Can be done, yeah. yeah. There are some substances that are opaque to infrared and infrared cameras won't see you if you're behind them. You're right, though. People have experimented with this kind of camera at the back, screen at the front, so you project what's behind the object onto the screen. Of course, that only really works from one angle and is really only useful if you're a long way away from the subject. And it really is sort of a form of adaptive camouflage, isn't it? It's more like a chameleon. I think they've done it with tanks and things, at least in tests. It's effective at a distance, very much so, yeah. But when you're up close to a person, it's not going to work, is it? Because the angle would be wrong. The angle would be different for different people. So you're questioning whether this technology, as it is, presented in the movie, would be possible anyway, is that what you're saying? Well, interestingly, I was thinking about the original novel's idea of invisibility, which, as I say, I think was some kind of chemical that you take. It's supposed to change your, make you translucent, transparent, change your index of refraction and stuff, make you as invisible as a Pyrex bowl in a washing-up <laughs> Now, the thing about that kind of invisibility kind of invisibility they had in the original book where he had to be naked to be invisible a fact much parodied <laughs> in, the, in the, the the intervening hundred years <laughs> if that kind of invisibility existed what would be the major problem for the user do you think paul don't know well you'd be blind wouldn't you oh. if you've rendered your everything including your retinas transparent to light it would oh, be with impossible you. for you to see anything Yes. You wouldn't be interacting with the light at all. With you. Either you would be a pair of eyes or a pair of retinas floating in the air, or you would be blind and pretty useless, I guess. Unless you started out blind, I guess. But you wouldn't really be able to observe much, would you? I think that's the point. So the thing about invisibility is it's actually got quite limited function. I mean, it would be great for spying on things. I was going to say, what superpower would you choose? Well, people often say invisibility, don't they? They Yes, they do, don't they? But I'm not sure what you do with it. It's a stalker's charter, isn't it? It's a power, it's a power trip, isn't it? It is a snooper's charter, absolutely. And if that's part of your job, it would be great if you're a spy or something. But if you're not a spy, if you don't want to drive yourself mad with paranoia about your interpersonal relationships, you don't really want to be spying on your friends and But the other ones, superpowers are like genuine superpowers pitted against another superpower. And it's, I think for most people, the interest to see, is my superpower the more superior one? With invisibility, it's kind of like a get-out clause from actually confronting other superpowers, isn't it? Yes, yes, it's an avoidance It's slightly different. It's different, isn't it? It would appeal to snoopers, wouldn't it, and people that don't want to confront directly. In a sense, it's a cop-out superpower. It doesn't satisfy the way the other ones do. Now, a suit covered with cameras gets around the problem of 
being invisible makes you blind because the camera's obviously... The suit, as it's depicted, if they really are camera lenses, because I may be wrong about that. I mean, it's a bit of overkill, isn't it? Because we've all seen 360 cameras, what they look like nowadays, because they yeah. can take a complete sphere using only a little stick with two lenses in them. You're right. I mean, theoretically, what we could have here is it could detect potential viewers, so either humans or other cameras in the area, and it could potentially project images in different directions that would ensure its invisibility from several directions. Does that make sense? Yeah, so maybe those lenses are not cameras, but maybe they're some kind of exotic Angle reflectors to, to project in different directions. And therefore, we can accept this as a potential technology that might work. The thing is, display technology is actually is actually the thing that holds us back here. The cameras bit mm. is a solved problem, actually. But mm. getting a display that would work... I mean, what we, we're talking about here is something that doesn't really exist, right? Is a lens that can project to a viewer's eyeballs from across the way an image that would land on their retina in the right way. That just doesn't exist. It doesn't. Well, it's, it's, it's a heck of a lot of Fury Transforms, isn't it? Let's put it that way. They're starting to do things with like synthetic holograms, and I think you'd be having to do something holographic to make a go of this. Wow. But it needs more than a Unity Games machine, doesn't it, to work it out? It probably needs the entire computing power of the world at the moment. <laughs> I was reading a thing quite a few years ago, like a decade ago, all about display technology being what holds us back. Mm-hmm. I mean, particularly in those days, an era where computers had to use CRTs to display anything. Nowadays, we've got LCDs. Okay, they're thinner. We're just getting foldable LCDs. And maybe rollable is on the horizon soon as well, I guess. Have you seen the windmills? The what? They're all over TikTok and YouTube at the moment. Like, it's like, it's a bar of light. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they spin round, at presumably at 24 or 48 RPM. One bar can produce... Persistence can of vision. Out, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, persistence of vision, which is interesting. I thought. Imagine trying to display something in broad daylight that would be convincing as if you were looking through an object. It'd be very difficult, very difficult to get a screen that has anything like the contrast and the brightness of of real life. So screen and display technology is what holds us back from having an invisibility suit. So digression, we were at the Doberman. No. No, we weren't. Doberman has come, yeah, he's come running, but she's broken to the house again. And the Doberman, because it likes her barks to indicate that somebody's on her tail. Does that make sense? But she's got this suit, hasn't she? She takes it and she hides it in the closet. I think she's got a secret panel in the closet where she was hiding her go bag. So she puts it in there. And as she's hiding in the closet, the sliding door slides open all of its own. As soon as she sees Chilling that, moment. she springs out of there and gets past the invisible guy. She gets back to her Uber, who was patiently waiting. That's nice. Time for it to book a meal in Chinatown with his sister. He must have been on top of the Uber or something. How would he have got there? Yeah, he must have been on top of the Uber. I think that needs to be, if they could make this again, I think that would be a nice creepy moment to bring back in. <laughs> Handprints on the top of the Uber. <laughs> anyway, what would you do after all that traumatic experience? Why not book uh, a meal with your, fr- with your sister, rather? Your sister in Chinatown. They go to a restaurant, don't they? And her sister comes up with a great line because the, the, the waiter does this typical introduction, doesn't he? He goes, have you been here before? Can I explain things to you? And she goes, I guess you order food and you eat it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we've got to employ people with liberal arts degrees, so why not jazz up the waiter service? You know? Can't all be barristers, can they? So Cecilia is trying to explain to her sister what she's seen and apologising, obviously, that she didn't send that email and all that stuff. 
But what happens, Paul, as she's doing this? This was really shocking. I just did not see it coming. So in the broad lamplight, not daylight, of the restaurant, a knife appears floating in midair and is taken to the neck of her sister. Her neck is just thoroughly slashed. Blood spurts out and she's dead in a second. It's just so shocking. And the knife gets sort of pushed into Cecilia's hand as she's sitting opposite, like shocked. Yeah, I see a section coming for her, don't you? It does look likely, doesn't it? I, it's interesting how the tropes, tropes of mentalists are always going to play in with this kind of did she, didn't she, has she gone mad, hasn't she gone mad kind of scenario. Well, she winds up being taken to a mental hospital pretty much immediately, Psych doesn't she? Psych eval, yeah, yeah. They're strapping her down on a bed in a kind of hospital cell in one of these secure units. They sedate her, they inject something into her arm to put her out, and as she's drifting off, again, the camera is looking at an empty corner of the cell. And she hears the word surprise as she's drifting off. There's a blood test reveal. The news that she never actually bothered to listen to on the phone call early in the movie is now brought to her. She's pregnant. This is really, this is, the, I think, the, the, the most sort of, the worst part about the movie, the creepiest part, is that he's been roofing her and having sex with her against her will. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe just tampering with her birth control. Oh, oh, yeah, potentially, yeah. But then, she's less sinister, uh, isn't she? She was taking birth control without telling him, I think, as well. So, because mm-hmm. she, as you say, she didn't want to be trapped in the relationship. Adrian's brother, Tom, arrives and gives her the sad news that the trust fund won't pay the... The halteation of payments, yes. Yeah, won't pay out the we'll inheritance pay nothing anymore. from now on, yeah. Because yeah. the criminal charges and the committal were conditions of the will. But he does say to her, yeah. he gives her an ultimatum, doesn't he? Oh, sorry, you want me to say what it is? Yeah. What does he say to her? Well, he says, he needs you because you don't need him. He says, we'll be watching. Well, I don't know if either of those are what you're looking for. No, he says, there's, oh. there's one option where this all goes away. Have the baby and go back to him. Yes. So admission that this, his brother is still alive, essentially. He says, he knew you were taking birth control and he replaced the pills. So she has a tirade at this point. She calls him the brother of a narcissistic sociopath. And again, I have to say, narcissists and sociopaths have had a really bad press in the past five years. Oh, have Neither they? of yeah. those. Finally, we need someone neither, to stand up for them. Neither of these two conditions make you a harmful narcissistic sociopath. So she should have clarified her language. I know she was angry. This she is what the brother Paul's of a therapist harmful, tells him. <laughs> a harmful narcissistic sociopath. Okay. I, I believe, Paul, I think sociopathy is a sort of synonym with psychopathy. It is, yeah. I mean, they used to be separately defined, but I think DSM, whatever version it is, doesn't differentiate them. So what you're saying is not all psychopaths are murderers, which is true, which is true. True. But they're quite often... If they're clinically defined as sociopath, I think she was using the clinical definition here, but I think by definition it's harmful behaviour. But that's not to say that sociopathic traits necessarily are harmful. Sure, yeah. And narcissistic traits are definitely not harmful. Well, when you say harmful, there's a difference between being criminally harmful and just being generally harmful and unpleasant well, to people. they're not even generally harmful, are they? There are plenty of sociopaths that don't harm other people. So Harm in what way, people, though? P- people with sociopathic traits, not people who have reached the spectrum, gone up to the spectrum to be clinically defined as sociopaths. But treating people callously and without thought does cause harm. It may not be... It may not be killing people. Treating though. people with too much kindness causes harm too, doesn't it? Okay. Mm. So who who decides what the balance point is on that? Spoken like a true sociopath. <laughs> I don't know if it's a true sociopath. I mean, you could say the same for narcissism, you know. I mean, excessive narcissism. Is, it, too much is too much by definition. Too little is too little by definition. It's obvious that you can harm people with too much care. 
Right. Spoiled children, for example, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so I, I don't think it's necessarily a sociopath's statement. Uh, but who defines what is the right amount? Is it clear? Is it even definable? I don't know. You've given us all a lot to think about, Paul. I can see you're on the side that sociopaths and narcissists need to be condemned across social media simply because of their personality traits. Is that right? Oh, I didn't say that, Paul. I didn't say condemned. Oh, okay. Well, it's almost like they become dirty words. And say, oh, he's such a narcissist. Blah, 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 blah. But there's clearly a level, a subclinical level mm-hmm. of narcissism, for instance. It's interesting, isn't it? Which is seen as harmful and not acceptable. And which is very detrimental to people and their emotional state and their well-being. And we do see mm. that. And we do see that. And but is it a continuum of spending £80 on your nails each week or not? Or is it not a continuum? Because I mean, we assume a spectrum continuum, but I'm not sure you can assume that. Can it you? may not be a continuous spectrum, I agree. I mean, the, the psychopathology may be completely different. What induces me to spend £2,000 on, I don't know, football coaching because I want to move up in the amateur leagues, you could call that narcissism, may not be the same enzyme-driven or biochemical-driven behaviour of somebody who is more clinically narcissistic. Does that make sense? And yet we assume a spectrum for all these things, don't we? Is this your coded way of saying that Trump's not all that bad? Or that we need a strong leader? (laughs) (laughs) Richard, my God, I'm a sociopath and I think Trump's great. I don't know. I mean, uh, Trump, I mean, what is Trump? He's certainly a narcissist, let's face it. That can't be denied, surely. That's not unusual, I don't think. Is he a sociopath? I don't know if he's a sociopath. Probably, yeah. I'm not sure those are the two things that make him dangerous. No. Amongst many traits that make him dangerous. That's just one of the broken teeth, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? He's a pathological liar as well. <laughs> yes. I, I think it's a pathological liar. It's the delusion, I think. Yes. Yeah, okay. Is he, may be, but he may believe some of what he says. That's true, yeah. Shocking. He certainly does too. I think... Often it's accused of being delusional in terms of how they view other people. But is it the narcissism driving delusion or delusion, which I don't think is recognised as a clinical condition, driving mm. the narcissism, you mm. see? So for me, I have a problem with the argumentation of all psychiatry is that we assume spectrums where none can be assumed, I don't think. I think this may be too much for us to completely uh, yes, solve. Richard, I am rec- I'm a recovering <laughs> sociopath too. No, the thing is, apparently you can't recover from sociopathy, can you? It's incurable. That's right, yeah. That's why they're all in Broadmoor. Incurable. No, 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 of course they're not. (laughs) Either they're all in Broadmoor or they're running Futsi Wonder companies. (laughs) The other thing, let's just, I mean, whilst we're on psychiatry, is the idea of intelligent psychopaths. And we all know now that that's just not true. Most psychopaths, one, are not murderers, and two, most psychopaths have relatively low IQs in the 80s and 90s range. Well, one of the things about them is their inability to sort of calculate the consequences of their actions. And that must speak of a lack of insight and a, perhaps and a certain level of impulsivity. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it'll be it'll be silly shooting season for psychopaths next year. They're going to get it in the neck, aren't they? Although, as you say, apparently these clinical distinctions are fast disappearing. Paul, listen, Cecilia, in this interview Sorry, with, her atter- with this attorney guy, she does a clever thing, doesn't she? She makes a uh-huh. fuss... And she knocks his case or his papers or something off. And as he's bending down to pick them up, she nabs a fountain pen, he's got several, out of his briefcase. What? I missed all this completely. Go on. Tell yeah. me what I'm intrigued. Well, she steals a fountain pen, what takes it back it? to her cell, and she hides oh, it in her right. cell so that at night, after she's oh, okay. been locked up and stuff, she takes the fountain pen. The invisible man kind of is in the room. She knows that. 
And so she, what she does, she goes to the shower room and she, she speaks to herself and to him at the same time. It's, it's like soliloquy for somebody else to hear, isn't it? And she stabs herself in the wrist, trying to harm herself, trying to kill herself. Saying, you're not going to get the baby. Knowing that he's going to come and intervene. He intervenes to stop her. And she stabs Except him. He's, he's, oh, is that why the suit starts glitching? I thought it was because of the water. Oh, he's a great guy. He would have designed a waterproof suit, wouldn't he? It might also be because of the, the water, but he, she stabs him firmly. And that makes it start glitching as well. Maybe the combination of the two. A guard comes into the room hearing the commotion. He sees this glitching man, but he gets killed. This Adrian guy is obviously a pretty buff combatant, isn't he? Yeah. She runs out of the room, more guards are appearing, and this invisible force is killing them one after the other. So we're very much in classic Invisible Man territory now, aren't we? She winds up running down the fire escape with one of the guards' guns. The Invisible Man is running away with a suit glitching, and she shoots him, manages to shoot him. Mm -hmm. It's raining heavily outside, and they wind up in the parking lot, as Americans would call it. He threatens Sydney, speaking to her, and says he's going to go after Sydney. Then disappears in a vehicle, starts driving away. So Cecilia manages to commandeer a very recently crashed car by a surprised driver, and she gives chase in this car, calling James on the way. Well done, by the way, for remembering the mobile phone number of a friend, because I don't know. <laughs> by any. the way, what was the what was the security guard and hospital guard body count? It was huge, wasn't it? He took out so many of them invisibly. It yeah, was it, it was at least a, a sort of six, wasn't it? Something of that order. Many of them by their own sword. He would invisibly twist the gun to their head and stuff like that. Yeah, she she's called James, told her, told him that Sydney might be in danger. The scene cuts now to James's house, where the door opens. We're just seeing the door open on its own. Of course, we know it's an invisible man there. Sydney is attacked, and she sprays Mace kind of wildly. And as she runs out of the room, she gets kind of fence post. Is that the word? Or clothesline, doesn't it? Yeah, that is. Just as she's struggling on the floor, her dad arrives. He gets beaten up by an invisible assailant and loses his weapon. He arrives in his plicky van, doesn't he? It's the first time we see him in his police van, yeah. He gets knocked out and he's he's sort of beaten up on the ground. Oh, shocking, yeah. Judicious use of talcum powder, yeah. Not talcum powder. Or was it talcum powder? What was it? It was a fire extinguisher. Oh, okay. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she sprays the invisible person. He appears in fire extinguisher foam. So now we can shoot him dead. And she does do it with a gun several times. Well done, Cecilia. That's a battle plan for you. But when they take off the mask... What a twist. And I wasn't expecting this. It's Tom. It's Tom the brother. It's the brother of Adrian. Yeah. Well, we then see Oof. we then see images of a SWAT team arriving at Adrian's house. And they go to the basement. And behind a locked door... Adrian is tied up there. I mean, I assume it's Adrian. We've barely seen him. I think we've seen, like, two shots of him visible. But Cecilia doesn't initially believe it. Well, would you? I mean, obviously he's set... Either he was in collusion with his brother or not in collusion with his brother, but then how is he still alive? He was controlling anyway, so... Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't believe it, would you? You wouldn't believe that it's all down to his brother. It's obviously him setting himself up again to portray himself as having been kidnapped by his brother. So, I mean, I wouldn't believe it, would you? So she goes to see him, doesn't she? Mm. And she gets dressed up in her really sexy dress to seduce kind of thing. She sort of lays it out with him. She says, if you want to be part of this child's life, then it has to start with honesty. Then she says, did you or did you not do what you did to me? Well, he's insisting it was his brother's doing, right? Yeah. Now, it turns out that she's wearing a wire and James is outside listening to everything over, over a radio link. 
That's right, isn't it? He's in the car outside. And, of course, there's cameras, security cameras all over the house and stuff. She excuses herself to go to the washroom, restroom, whatever you call a toilet in an American house. While she's out on the security cam, what do we see, Paul? (laughs) We see, again, similar to what happened to her sister, we see Adrian take his own life. This time the knife is thrust into his hand and then his hand reaches to his neck and almost chops his chops his head off, doesn't it? Deep, deep cut across his neck and he immediately bleeds to death. James runs into the house and he finds Cecilia is there calling 911 and she tells James that he killed himself. James looks down and he sees her carrying a bag and in the bag we see and James sees the lenticular surface of one of those invisibility suits. Invisibility cloaks, yeah. Whoa. He says, yeah, it sounded a lot like he killed himself. So a nice twist there, of course. We're expecting her to go back and for uh, and uh, for Adrian to attack her again. But instead, it's all the other way around. Superb. She'd planned it all. She'd used the suit that she'd stashed in her secret cubbyhole to set up a murder that looks like a suicide. And he's even on CCTV like that. Well done. Or had she done it all and planned her own terror... Terror... <laughs> terror Terror, uh, you know, her own experience of terror, all from the beginning, including creeping out of the house from the very beginning because she knew it was under CCTV. Unlikely, but it does throw up a slight possibility. <laughs> she planned it all so she could escape the marriage, yeah. yeah. But she'd have to sacrifice her own sister for that, though. It seems a bit She much. would, yeah. yeah. So unlikely, indeed. So there we are. Well, we could score the film, couldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, what do you think? That was a really enjoyable romp, really. I liked the scenery and the settings and the muted colours, and of course, Rich Man's Palace out on the out on the on, on the on the California coast. It's all lovely. I love the way they echoed original Invisible Man movies. I'd just like to okay. say it's actually on the Australian coast, but yes, <laughs> portraying the portraying in in the film universe the California coast. I, I love the twists. I thought the tension at the beginning was really great. Some great sound, a great soundtrack with the environmental kind of distorted sounds of the, uh, the soundtrack as as the action happened. So generally speaking, I thought it was a really, really, really strong showing. I think we're discussing plot here, aren't we? Mostly for the umpteenth time, though, we have mm. an example of a scientist who's <laughs> a psychopath and going off the rails and developing a new technology and misusing it. Playing with God, yeah. Playing with God's work. I mean, it's H.G. Wells, isn't it? It's from an H.G. Wells story, so perhaps we can't... Mm-hmm. It, it's a trope setter, not a trope follower. Should we say mm. that much? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's the necessary. If you're going to make a movie called The Invisible Man, that's all good. It, it's, it's a given, isn't it? In terms of tropism, I don't know. The way, the, the way mental illness was shoehorned in as a possible explanation... A counter, a counter explanation that was never pursued as to why she might be saying these things. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of it is a little bit kind of dated, isn't it? But I mean, the real way this kind of thing would happen, it wouldn't be the scientist who's the crazy lunatic, would it? If Elon Musk had got one of his teams to develop an invisibility suit, it would be Elon Musk going around. He'd be the crazy one committing the crimes. It wouldn't be the scientists who worked diligently to make an invisibility suit. Oh, with you, yeah, yeah. Musk would have probably had him killed, wouldn't he? As soon as it started working. Oh, Richard, you should be writing these movies. Thank you, thank you. I just think it's high time we saw some sympathetic science characters in a film. True, and maybe even Elon Musk wouldn't be going around killing people. Maybe crazy vax deniers would be thinking he was doing that and they'd be storming Parliament, trying <laughs> to get hold of the people that legislated Elon Musk's business. 
into being kind of thing. We would we don't actually need science to be bad, do we, for people to think it's bad? It's no, we don't. That's absolutely true. So for plot, I'm going to give this a seven. Yeah, I like the twists. It kind of hit a slow patch in the middle, didn't it? Okay. The twists are rather obvious. It's an Invisible Man movie, but I kind of enjoyed the fact they stayed. Oh, you didn't guess it was his brother? No way. Kind of, yeah. Oh, did you? Because he's he's creepy and and a lawyer. But I would have loved to have seen maybe multiple perspectives where we pursue, or for a while, we entertain the idea that she's imagining all this herself. It's suggested, but we're never... We never have to. We never have given an outside perspective on this, are we? So we can't. We can't follow that in our minds because we know it's not going to happen in the movie. And I would have loved the suggestion that maybe she did all of this. The whole thing was up to her, as well, to pursue and then throw away. But yeah, I'm going to give it eight out of ten. I love the plot. It was complete and satisfying for a two-hour movie. Now we haven't mentioned the lead actress Elizabeth Moss at all. No, we haven't. She was You're in. Going to tell me she's somebody famous, aren't you? Oh yeah, she was in The Handmaid's Tale. Uh-huh. She was also in Us, which of course we've seen in our we have in our series. Yeah, she does a great job in this. She has to carry a lot of the film, and in some scenes, presumably, she's acting alone or possibly with a man dressed entirely in a green suit. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, I read some stuff that I think they asked the actor playing her husband to dress up in a green suit for quite a lot of it, even though he wasn't necessarily needed. Because they could just do it all with strings and stuff. But she wanted someone to play off against. So I think he was on set more, far more often than perhaps he was really used. She was good, so I'm going to give it an eight for acting. I'm going to go six on the acting. It's not bad, not good. It was good. However, I just don't think it went anywhere particularly special. Damning indictment from Paul for Elizabeth Moss. Not just her. I'm, I'm scoring, the, the, scoring the, the cast overall of six out of ten. So, I thought she put, in a, she put in a strong and creditable performance. So how about... A combination of special effects and cinematography as well. Yeah, there's a possibility you might find invisible villains annoying after a while, and that never happened here, did it? Okay. It was, I mean, when he was hoisting people up by their necks and, they were, and, uh, and slashing people's throats invisibly. It was one, shocking, but two, it was very convincing. Cinematography, I love the cinematography, as I've said, very evocative, very moody. So I think this is a strong point for me. 8.5. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, it is strong. It's because of all those shots I mentioned where it's framed kind of askew, leaving some blank space for a, a putative villain to be standing in that we can't see. Very clever, very subliminal for you, apparently, but still very creepy. Yeah, very good. It's got to be an 8 for this, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, and all, all the scenes where the Invisible Man is fighting with someone, very cleverly done. A lot of CGI paint-out, I imagine, was involved in those fight scenes. Does that give us an overall score, then, Paul? Do you it want does, to yeah. yeah. I mean, how do you think about the themes? I mean, in terms of how it presented, pursued and harassed women, well, more than harassed, with unyielding partners, did you think that, did you think that her response was always maybe a victim's response? Did, did we see a rise to become a hero or not? Well, I, I, I think, we think did in the unfortunately, end. probably the most unrealistic thing about this film is a woman trapped in an abusive relationship takes the steps to get out. Because that so often doesn't happen, right? I mean, people are people are trapped in these relationships because they feel they can't. It's the whole thing, isn't it? It's rare, I think, for people to... Before yeah, but I, really I, I, don't think I, was, I don't think I was requesting a realistic no, sure. representation. Okay. Do you think it portrayed or enabled women to see that they, that they could positively take steps to... To confront this if it happened in real life. Against an uh, invisible assailant, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I felt for much of the movie, she was too victimised, too traumatised. 
I, 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 I t- entirely understand in real life, you know, you, you would be feeling much worse than this, wouldn't you? Yeah, but in, yeah, in yeah. terms of a fiction, and essentially a superhero fiction, or a supervillain fiction here, I didn't quite think it hit the right note in terms of what these kind of movies can do. Think about what Black Panther did in terms of finally realising black Americans... Can be heroes. Uh, can be heroes. Uh, that, that potentiality. Yeah. I'm not sure potentialities were explored in this. Was this, I think there should have been. Or was it just a slasher horror movie? I don't know. I think it's just a horror movie, really, or a creepy movie. Right. Okay, well, let's just... Score it on that basis. Yeah, okay. So what's your overall, then? A great score, 8 out of 10. I love this one, really strong. I'll give it a strong 7. It mm-hmm. is good. It's it, good. It is good, yeah. But not great. There we go. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's, that's a good score. There. Your score is good, Paul. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, this is a really, really good movie. Okay, Paul, now... We have three possible movies for you to choose from. Oh. They are. They are. <laughs> First one is Nocturnal Animals. Yeah. The second one is I Am Not Your Mother. Yes. And the third one is You Were Never Really Here. Okay. Can you just repeat that for me? <laughs> the first one is Nocturnal, Nocturnal animals. animals. I Am Not Your Mother. You uh-huh. Were Never Really Here. Okay, there's only one choice, and that is Nocturnal Animals, Richard. Nocturnal Animals. Okay. I can't tell you much about it. We'll have to find it next week. Thank you for listening this week. Do join us next time on episode 29. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Until then, goodbye. Ciao for now. See you in the next one. Bye.